some humour to begin. You'll see behind me a domestic scene with the husband, and he's got his hands in the sink. And he's asking, where in the Bible does it say it's a man's job to do the dishes? Quick as a flash, you will see on the screen. Second Kings 21, verses 13. God's saying, And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Notice, men, that God has not only said do the dishes, but has given you instructions. When you wipe the dish, then you put it upside down on the dish rack so that the water doesn't pull. Here we go. (laughs) You know, there's nothing like quoting scripture out of context to have some fun, isn't there? <laughs> Out of context, and the King James version, you can have a lot of fun, and or sadly, you can you can start a cult by taking a verse out of context. It's been rightly said that if you take the text out of context, what are you left with? You're left with a con, aren't you? It's vitally important that when we we look at scripture that we take the big picture. We look at the verses either side and and what's God saying to the people originally before we apply it to ourselves. And that's what we're going to do today to the most famous verse in Jeremiah. We're back in our series in Jeremiah. We've taken a break over Christmas and the New Year, but we're back into the book of Jeremiah. And we quite happily take that famous verse out of context and apply it to our lives. The question I'm going to ask today, are we doing the right thing or are we conning ourselves? And I wonder if you know what verse I'm referring to. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? And for a number of us, it has very special meanings. And if you are ever in a small group or a church context and people say, what's your favorite verse? Normally, this verse pops up somewhere. But are we right to take it out of Jeremiah and apply it to ourselves? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches and the treasures that are in your word. Help us to grow in our ability to read and handle it rightly. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time we looked at Jeremiah, he had been arrested, put on trial, and finally acquitted, all because he was faithful in proclaiming God's word. Because God had protected him, he was able to continue freely in his ministry. And that's what we pick up today in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing a letter, and it's a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And we think to ourselves, now what exiles? What's happened here? When we started the book of Jeremiah, uh, Judah and Jerusalem were independent country and city. But now we come to have Jeremiah in a situation where people from Jerusalem had been exiled to Babylon. So historically, it's helpful if we have a bit of a catch-up. 
Jeremiah ministered over the last five kings before the big Babylonian exile. But this took two major battles. So in about 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had surrounded Jerusalem and broke through. Now what he did is he set up a puppet king and he exiled all of the best and the brightest from Jerusalem and Judea. Think Daniel, think Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. All of the best he carried off to exile and he left behind the riffraff. I mean that in a nice way. He left behind the other people and Jeremiah. Now as it turned out, The puppet king eventually rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So he came back 11 years after and totally decimated the city, pulled down the temple and the city walls. And so it took two major battles to destroy Jerusalem, and that was because God was being patient with the people and calling them to repent. He kept on giving them chance after chance. Anyway, it's during this in-between time that Jeremiah is now ministering. And so what's happened is that he has heard that, that the exiles in Babylon had false prophets had sprung up and were telling the people in Babylon that they would soon be going back to Jerusalem, that this was only a temporary setback and that they would be going home. Now, Jeremiah's got word of these lies, and so by God's inspiration, he writes a letter And this is what we're exploring today. And uh, this letter is typical Jeremiah in that it's bad news, good news, and then because it's Jeremiah, he finishes with more bad news. So, bad news, you will die in Babylon. Sure, Jeremiah, isn't it? (laughs) You're not coming home. Then the good news is, I, this is God, I will give you great hope. And then it finishes off with, The false prophets are in big trouble. They will die a very gory death in your eyes. And so that's the letter that we're going to look at. Now, even Jeremiah is not as blunt as this. And so we're going to explore what he's saying in his letter, starting at verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, the first surprise here is that it was God who says, I carried you into exile. You see, it wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar was the better king or had the stronger army. It's just that time and time again, Jeremiah had said, if you don't repent from your idols, if you don't stop being unjust to the poor, I will send the king of Babylon to come and carry you into exile. Jeremiah had been banging on about this for years, and finally it had happened. So it wasn't the king of Babylon who had carried them into exile as such. It was God's hand. And surprisingly, it was these first exiles that were most favoured by God. You'd think the ones that had been removed first were the worst ones, but no. God removed the best that he could away from the corruption of Jerusalem. Again, think Daniel and his three friends. And he had special plans for those people In exile, they weren't going to waste away. God had chosen them and taken them away. And this is why he continues, much to everyone's surprise, in verse 5. This is to the exiles. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat 
what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Increase in number, do not decrease. Now this is a very kind way of Jeremiah saying, you're not coming home. <laughs> okay, so they're saying, well, you know, the prophets are saying, we're going to go home, let's pack our bags. And Jeremiah is saying, well, no, unpack your bags, build a house, you know, marry your children, spoil your grandchildren. You're going to be there for the long haul. And this has strong echoes of the Genesis story. We remember Jacob and his family, they were in the promised land. And then God took them not to Babylon, to Egypt. Why? He took Jacob and his family for their protection to increase in numbers and so they would return to the promised land stronger. Well, this is exactly what God's doing here. He's taking these exiles out from Jerusalem to protect them from the corruption so they can increase in numbers and so that when they do go back to Jerusalem and to the promised land, they will be stronger. I mean, that's God's plan. And this is why he continues in verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God is saying, now you're in exile, I will bless you by rebuilding your numbers and increasing your devotion to me. So pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Now, this is very counterintuitive to the exiles. It's the wrong way round. Every one of those exiles would have known someone killed, either someone in their family or friends or acquaintance. All of their worldly possessions were taken from them. They were left with nothing and taken off to a far-off land to servitude. So you'd think, naturally, they'd be praying for curses to come down on Babylon and for them to get their just deserts and their justice. And God is saying, no, I want you to pray blessings on this city because your prosperity is tied up with the prosperity of Babylon. Next, God warns them directly against the false prophets. Verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams. You encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Notice that the people themselves have been encouraging the false prophets. They have deliberately turned away from hearing God's word and are listening to things that tickle their ear. So the people in the exiles, what they were wanting to hear was, well, this is just a, a short reversal, a little hiccup. You'll be home by Passover. And because that's what the people wanted to hear, that's what the false prophets were telling them. Anyway, this ends the first section, the bad news section of the letter. Exiles, you're not going home. Next we come to the hope section, the good news section of this letter, starting in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, to bring you back to Jerusalem and to Judah. Now what God is saying here is, I have put limits on Babylon. I have put limits on Babylon, 70 years and the clock is ticking. 
Though you will die in your exile, your grandchildren will return to Jerusalem. I carried you off. I will carry your grandchildren home according to my gracious promise. Now, what gracious promise is this? Well, long before that first exile, Jeremiah had already prophesied to the Israelites, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your idol worship, if you don't turn from oppressing the poor, I will send Babylon and they will decimate this land. And so in Jeremiah 25, you can read that prophecy, but listen how it ends. The whole country will become desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. You see, this is the gracious promise that Jeremiah had told the Israelites years before, and this is the promise, the gracious promise, that God is reminding the exiles. The 70 years is the limit, and I've started the clock. Now, we're going to take a brief aside from that letter to follow this gracious promise and see how this 70 years was fulfilled. If we fast forward a few decades, Daniel is now an old man. Now, this letter and probably the other prophecies of Jeremiah have been circulated through Babylon among the exiles. And Daniel gets a copy of this letter. And then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel, as an old man, has come across the scroll with this letter on and sees the 70 years, and he does the maths. And he realized that 70 years is coming soon. And so he prays and fasts. He claims God's promise. And God listens. A few more years, we fast forward and to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And what had happened was that Babylon had fallen. The king of Persia had attacked. And now Cyrus is the king. And in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. And that proclamation was throughout old Persia and Babylon was that any Jewish person who wanted to go back to Jerusalem was free to do so. 70 years is up. Cyrus didn't know about it, but God moved his heart so that in 70 years' time, the Jews were free to go back. Many did, not all of them. Many of the Jews had settled in Babylon and what was then Persia and stayed, but a number went back. Isn't God faithful? 70 years, and he came through, historically verifiable. And so here Jeremiah is at the beginning of the exile saying to those that are discouraged, 70 years, and your children, some of your children, but certainly your grandchildren, will be back in Jerusalem. That's verse 10. And see how we've tracked through the context so that we now come to verse 11. What's the context of verse 11? God has a future and hope 
for the exiles in Babylon. And if they work and pray for the prosperity of Babylon, then they too will prosper. And these are the plans, the good plans that God has for his people. Jeremiah 29.11. See, this is where it comes. For I know the plans I have for you. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to those exiles who have heard the sad news that they are going to be stuck in Babylon all their lives. For I know the plans I have you, plans to prosper you in Babylon, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. But that's not all. There is more wonder in this passage than verse 11 because things get better in verses 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And what we have here are conditions. Yes, I will bless you, you will prosper, but there's something that you have to do. It's not automatic. And what are those things? Three things and fourth, uh, we have to contribute to this process. The three things are to call upon God, come to God, and pray to God. For us to have Jeremiah 29, 11 made real in our life, we need to call upon God, come to God, pray to God. And that's the same as seeking him with all our heart. You see the condition on Jeremiah 29, 11, seeking God with all our heart. And then he promises even more abundance. He promises two things. First of all, he promises to listen to us, and he promises to be found by us. He promises to listen when we come, when we call, when we pray, and he will be found by us. Aren't they amazing promises? They're huge promises. And so we do ourselves a disservice if we just stop at Jeremiah 29.11. Now we're going to pull away from the letter now. We've looked at the bad news. we looked at the good news. And the third section basically says, those guys, those false prophets, they'll be burnt alive and you'll be watching and then they'll become a proverb of cursing. That's the summary of that section. Very much Jeremiah. We'll, uh, I'll leave that for you to look at in your own leisure. We've looked at the context of Jeremiah 29.11. We now know enough so that we can understand it. So let's have some take-home. Three take-homes to finish. First of all, from this passage, we have learnt and been reminded and encouraged to pray for the peace and the prosperity of the town that we live in. For most of us, it's Cromwell. For some other lucky people visiting us, it could be Gore or Dunedin or Invercargill. But wherever we live, you get the point, we are to pray for the prosperity of the town and the city we live in. The New Testament makes it very clear that we are spiritual exiles. We are spiritual exiles in this world. We don't belong In the same way that the Jewish folk, the Israelites, did not belong in Babylon, but belonged in Jerusalem, we do not belong in this world. We belong with Christ in heaven. And so we are exiles. But both this passage and the New Testament make it clear that God's will for us is to build our homes and plant our vegetables and eat the produce and see our children married and to spoil our grandchildren rotten. Okay? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing, even though we are exiles, all the time praying that our town, our neighbours, our family will come to know Christ 
and praying that our town and our country will honour Christ in all the ways that it can. So that's our first take-home for today. We are exiles. We are to pray for the prosperity of our town, for the glory of God. Second of all, God is faithful to his promises. If he says 70 years, then 70 years it is. If Jesus says, three days and I will rise from the grave, then three days it is. If God says, as he does in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, if he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation, well, today is the day of salvation. The 12th of January 2020 is the day of your salvation if you will come to Christ with a humble heart. Repent from your sins and ask him to be Lord. Then today is the day that you can have everlasting life and the sure knowledge that you are adopted as a dearly loved daughter or son of Christ. So whether it's 70 years or three days or today, God keeps his promises. And finally, the context of Jeremiah 29.11. We can claim this promise for ourselves. Looking at the context and knowing that Christ has fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament and because of his work on the cross, every promise of the Old Testament is ours to claim as long as we know the context. And the context is clear. God has plans to prosper us, not to harm us. But there is a condition. We need to call, pray, seek. Seek him with all our heart. And then the promises, again, he will be found by us and he will listen to us. That is the prosperity we are to seek. And so just a caution to finish. As we look at God's prosperity, let us not confuse it with the world's prosperity. We get inundated on the TV and media and through neighbours and friends and colleagues a false idea of prosperity. Let's agree on this. Let Christ define prosperity and not the world. So many Christians think prosperity from blessings from the God means I'm healthy, means I've got money in the bank. And that's the definition of prosperity. But that's the world's definition, and it's not Jesus' definition. So I'm going to finish with the definition of Jesus, the definition of prosperity. It's from Matthew 5, the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Prosperous people are poor in spirit, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Prosperous people are those who mourn, for God will comfort them. Prosperous people are the meek, and they will inherit the earth. Prosperous people hunger and thirst after God and are filled. Prosperous people are merciful because they have received mercy from God. Prosperous people are pure in heart and they will see God. Prosperous people are peacemakers and are called daughters and sons of God. Prosperous people are persecuted. Persecuted because they love Jesus and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's the definition. That's Jesus' definition of prosperity. goes far beyond being healthy and having money in the bank. And let me finish with a short story from my week. I was on the phone, and I was thanking a friend for a favor. And as he was talking on the phone, he said, 
My wife reminded me today that exactly this time, 27 years ago, I was in hospital with a heart attack. And then he said, you know, my minister, he came and visited me. And he opened the Bible. And he shared a verse from Jeremiah. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm writing a sermon on this. This sounds like I can use this. And he said, guess what verse it was? I said, I don't know. (laughs) And he said it was Jeremiah 29.11. 27 years ago, his pastor had shared that verse, and he still remembers it off by heart. What a blessing. What an amazing blessing. And so, is it right for us to take Jeremiah 29.11, to encourage ourselves and to bless others? Most definitely, yes. Let's pray.